Hey, it's Pat Gray coming up on the Glenn Beck program today. Uh, we started off the show by talking about a former psychiatrist, Aruna Kilinani, who is just a delightful, this is a lovely person, spewing racist hatred towards white people during his speech at Yale's Child Study Center. Also, Glenn goes into how we can fight this kind of thing, uh, fight against these evils in our world and continue to survive. Really important stuff during that hour. And while on MSNBC, Dr. Fauci criticized the recent criticism of him after his email scandal, because an attack on him, he says, an attack on me is an attack on science. Plus, uh, we talked to David Petruza, a historian, some great stuff on here on the 77th anniversary yesterday of D-Day. And he gives a quick history lesson of that day that many schools aren't even teaching anymore. That and a lot more coming up on the podcast today. You're listening to the best of the Glenn Beck program. So our gratitude goes to Barry Weiss uh, for exposing this. Barry Weiss is not a conservative. She was with the New York Times and uh, she had to leave there because she was starting to come under attack. And she has she's liberal. She's liberal. And so she has been speaking out against the insanity that the left now has embraced. Um, Pat, I know you you uh, saw this this weekend as well, so I'd love your comments. Mm-hmm. I'm going to play uh, I'm going to play some cuts here from uh, this lecture. This is from a, a a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst out of New York City. She's speaking at the Yale School of Medicine. Now, <laughs> uh, why is this a problem? Well, if you if you have time today, just look up the T4 program. Uh, I think it's T4. It's a T4, T2, uh, Pat. Could you look that up? Um, it is the the beginning of the extermination camps in Germany. You see, those weren't started by guys in black uniforms. They were the exact opposite. All of that, all of the Holocaust, it all started with people in white uniforms and scrubs. They were the doctors and the nurses. And already the AMA has said they're putting critical race theory into the medical profession. The guy who used to be the chief editor of uh, the journal of uh, AMA has been fired. He's been there for years. Sorry, he hasn't been fired. He retired after he spoke out and said, we can't put this into the medical field. You can't inject politics and you can't inject CRT. He then suddenly decided to retire on his own. This is this is uh, now being exposed. Thank goodness by Barry Weiss. And uh, this is only the beginning of this. If we don't all stand up here, she is giving a lecture on the psych, uh, psychopathic problem of the white mind. I'm going to play these in reverse, please, for uh, engineering on television. Let's play cut, uh, what is it, five, please. We need to remember that directly talking about race to white people is useless because we're at the wrong level of conversation. Addressing racism is things that white people can see and process what we are talking about. They can't. That's why they sound demented. 
don't even know they have a mask on. White people think it's their actual face. We need to get to know them now. Black rage has nothing to do with black people and everything to do with white people. Okay. All right. So talking to white people, see, her whole idea here is that white people are literally out of their minds. And so, like CRT, there's no redemption. You can't save them because they're so far gone. They are racism is part of who they are that why talk to them? Now, I I want you to understand if you think someone is too far gone, that you can't even talk to them, and they are the biggest threat to your life, what options are left for you? Can you coexist? Can you coexist with someone who wants you dead? Can you coexist with somebody who wants you to be their slave? Can you coexist and have a neighbor that is psychotic and doesn't even know it and is working against you and your race 24-7. If I can't talk to them, if there is no saving them, then I either have to put them in a camp or chain them up or kill them. Cut four. The white people are out of their minds and they have been for a long time. So we're not in a psychological predicament because white people feel that we are bullying them when we bring up race. They feel that we should be thanking them for all that they have done for us. They are confused and so are we. Can you hear me okay? Forgetting that directly talking about race is a waste of our breath. We are asking a demented, violent predator who thinks that they are a saint or a superhero to accept responsibility. It ain't gonna happen. They have five holes in their brain. It's like banging your head against a brick wall, just like sort of not a good idea. Let me mm. let me let me restate again exactly what she said verbatim. We are now in a psychological predicament because white people feel that we are bullying them when we bring up race. They feel that we should be thanking them for all that we have done, uh, all that they have done for us. I don't feel that way. Pat, do you know anyone that feels that way? No, I've never seen it. I've never heard it. No, I have. You know who you know who probably does feel that way? The people in the White House. Who are mm-hmm. saying that right. uh, black people can't get an accountant, uh, they can't get a lawyer. So those people probably do think that they should be thanked for all that they are doing. Because they're saying that black people can't do it on their own. That's not a conservative. That's not a constitutionalist. That's not the Americans that I know. Okay, said they are she she went on. She said they are confused, meaning white people. And so are we. We keep forgetting that directly talking about race is a waste of our breath. We are asking a demented, violent predator who thinks that they are a saint or a superhero to accept responsibility. Now, let me flip this around. 
I know there are a lot of people that think, how are we going to deal with these Marxists? Because they'll never change their mind. How are you going to deal with Antifa? Well, Antifa, if they won't change their mind, if they won't come and see the light of what their violence really is and what they're advocating for, there's, there's only really one thing you can do, and that is put them in prison uh, because they're breaking the law. But if they're demented and a violent predator who think they are a saint or a superhero and they won't accept responsibility, they have to go to jail or worse. That's what she's saying about all white people. She said it ain't going to happen because they have five holes in their brain. It's like banging your head against a brick wall. It's just sort of like not a good idea. Next cut, please. Why are white people so confused by black rage? More importantly, why do white people have so little empathy towards black rage? In 1846, Chappelle begged white women to just shut up. White women cannot stop talking for longer than five minutes because they think that they are here to teach us about white privilege. And I saw the same type of thinking in all white people in the institutions I was at. But now I got some tools. So let's just say I got a roadmap to the white mind. Are you out of your mind if you can't see that? Uh, you know, all I keep thinking is um, what you believe, so shall it be. So whatever it is that you believe, uh, she believes that she is surrounded by by lunatics, that all whites are lunatics and they're everywhere. Of course, that's exactly what she'll find because she won't have a reasonable conversation with anyone. Cut two, please. Around five years ago, I took some action. I systemically, systematically, I'm going to do. White groups did, most of my white friends. And I got rid of a couple white bypasses that snuck in my throat, too. I stopped watching the news. Once I started, I couldn't stop. I had less than 1% left. It was also public service. I had fantasies of unloading a revolver into the head of any white person that got in my way, daring their body, and wiping my bloody hands as I walked away relatively gentlest. With a bounce in my step, like I did the world of paper. Okay, so there's two things she's saying here. The first, she said in real life, she's gotten rid of all of her white friends. She's gotten rid of all of her white friends. So now uh, you are completely isolated. You're not, you're isolating yourself. You're not allowing yourself uh, to experience anything different. You know, you know who did this? Uh, the Nazis did this. The Nazis isolated themselves from Jews. Do you know the number one reason why people saved Jews in Germany? What they said verbatim? Yes, Jews are bad, but I know this one, and this one isn't bad. They had so isolated themselves that they had felt that all Jews were bad, except the one they knew. So if you're taking people and you're saying, I'm getting rid of all of my white friends, can you imagine if you said, I'm getting rid of all my black friends? First of all, you'd be a Klan member. This woman is saying, get rid of all of my uh, white friends. She's part of the white Klan. She's part of this, this uh, 
uh, clan that is against white people. There is no difference between the the ideology uh, ideology. There's no difference between what they are advocating. So she's saying I'm getting rid of my white friends. But then she says I fantasized. Now, she's a psychoanalyst. So when you're fantasizing about something, there's a deeper meaning behind this. There is something psychologically wrong with you. If we had somebody in school that was writing a paper about how he fantasized on killing all of the kids in his school, we would have him banned from school and he would be in an institution. Am I wrong on that, Pat? Any doubt? No doubt at all. No doubt. If I said on the air, I have a fantasy of killing X, Y, or Z, and and it was part of my rhetoric because these people are so dangerous, whoever these people are, these people are so dangerous, they're insane, they have to be stopped, there's no dealing with them. I have this fantasy, I would lose my job, rightfully so. She said she has a fantasy where she unloads a revolver into the head of any white person that got in her way, then burying them, wiping off her hands with a bounce in her step because she had done the uh, people of the world a favor. Again, this is a lecture from the Yale School of Medicine, the Child Psychology Department. One more clip and then I'm going to break. Most people's expectation is that we need to take their attacks with gratitude and apologize for our anger and not we're overly sensitive and crazy. Our rage is the real problem. Except nothing makes me angrier than a white person who tells me to not be angry because they have not seen real anger yet. I did this for years in a psychoanalysis where every time I got angry around race, this white told me psychotic. She told me that the problem was that I was, quote, too smart and that I either had to be psychic or psychotic. Her interpretations had nothing to do with me. Psychoanalysis was used on the, as a weapon on me to have aspects of her mind, a projection which I'll unpack. She'd attack me through racist interpretations and then make my anger, quote, the problem. I spent years unpacking her racism to her while she charged me cash money for years. And then she'd attempt to, quote, teach me because she had concern about my anger. I couldn't get her to shut the up. This is the cost of talking to white people at all. The cost of your own life as they stuff you dry. There are no good apples out there. White people make my blood boil. Okay, so there's a couple of things that we have to do. Um... And one of them is not be enraged. And I know it's really hard. Um, you know, you have nobody is talking about uh, the the meeting on Black Wall Street that happened last week where one of the speakers uh, is that fact, several of the speakers uh, echoed these. But we must fight on every front to achieve redre- uh, to achieve redress and reparations and the atrocities committed upon the Tulsa massacre descendants. We must intensify the fight. To, uh, for reparations for 40 million blacks still affected by racism, inequality, wealth, disparity, police brutality, and the like. Um, uh, it is time for us 
to kill everything white in sight. We're pushing death to white supremacy, death to capitalism, death to imperialism, death to fascism. We're pushing for an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a head for a head, and a life for a life. Okay. Um, nobody's talking about that. That happened last week. It's white supremacy that is the biggest uh, threat to America. You know that not to be true. First thing you have to do is not be enraged by it because anger. Give me Yoda, Pat, will you? On anger. Oof. He's so uh, clear. Anger. Anger leads to fear. fear. No. Anger really? leads to hate. Hate leads to fear. Fear leads to no. suffering or something no, to that fear. effect. I, no, fear. Fear leads to anger. Yeah. So start there. Fear. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. Hmm? Suffering. Yes. 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 Okay. No. So. Yes. <laughs> Um, no. So yes. we cannot be angry, um, <laughs> but we have to take a stand. You're listening to the best of the Glenn Beck program. I was, um, I'm up at our ranch, which is high up in the mountains in a town of about 500 people on one side and, well, I don't know, maybe a thousand people on the other side. And, um, we pick this for a reason, you know, people are looking for, where can I live? Where can I live? We pick this area for a reason because, uh, because they're farmers, uh, they're people that, uh, still work with the soil. They still rely on God. Farmers rely on one another and they take care of their own. Uh, and this town is wide awake. I mean, they're talking about making a smoker to be able to smoke meat. Um, you know, just, you know, just to be able to have it and use it now. But if things go bad, you'd be able to preserve meat. Um, they just started in Malad. They just started this last weekend a farmer's market. Which, you know, they were like, I don't know how many people are going to come this weekend. I don't know, you know, how this is going to go over. It went well this weekend. But the reason why they're doing it is because they know that we need to start growing and thinking locally. They know that, you know, the trucks could start to stop coming or the trains could stop coming from the cities. And we all need to eat. I would urge you, if you are in a town to do what they have done start a farmer's market if you don't have one start attending a farmer's market uh start growing your own food if you're looking to move find a very small town particularly of farmers and if you can find farmers who are also religious uh the amish would be a great place to uh, live if it wasn't so close to the east coast um finding people who have Values that are entrenched, generationally entrenched, uh, and that they are, they're not worried about their stuff. They're not worried about anything. You can find these communities. They are there. Uh, and it is important that we are living around like-minded people because it's going to get harder and harder. You know, I remember I went to a Catholic school when I was young. And um, 
I remember thinking about, you know, the end of days and, you know, Jesus coming back. And as a kid, that's terribly frightening. It's terribly frightening. Um, and I remember in Second Timothy, I remember, or two Timothys, if you will, um, when uh, in Second Timothy, he describes what things are going to be like. And I really had a hard time. I had to project out and say, oh, I could see that happening. If you've ever thought that before, I want you to listen carefully and tell me you don't have to project out anymore. But understand this, that in the last days will come of difficulty for people will be lovers of self. Absolutely true. Um, even the best of us. Uh, I mean, I have a hard time and I know kids are always, you know, me, me, me. Um, but I'm I'm concerned as, at times with my own kids that they don't necessarily focus on others as much as they should. Uh, and neither do I. Lovers of self, they're lovers of money, they're proud, they're arrogant, they're abusive, they're disobedient to their parents. They're ungrateful. They're unholy. They're heartless, unappeasable. Listen to that one. They're slanderous, without self-control. They're brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, Think of that one having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. May I just say, Joe Biden saying how he is the guy to stand up for the right and the good. He is the righteous one. Do you remember all of the things that he said during the campaign that I'm like, oh, my gosh, who would say this, that he's the light but also he's the guy who stood up and said, there are no miracles coming. <sighs> Avoid such people, it says, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women. Now listen to this weak women that oh, how outrageous weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. These men will oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind, disqualified regarding the faith. And then there's this line, they won't get very far, for their folly will be plain for all to see. Hmm. Now, I think it is plain for all to see, but how many people have lost themselves in some of these descriptions of the people who are going to be causing the difficulty. So in, in thinking about this, I mean, that's describing, that's describing what, you know, was coming, which I think is here. All of those descriptions, I could do an hour monologue on just those descriptions and I can show you how all of us, are living some of those horrible things and 
some of us and some you know rulers are living all of them right now so if that's what you're not supposed to do if that's what you're avoiding what should we be concentrating on because i will tell you just like george washington and the badge of merit we will not be able to conquer this evil unless we are on god's side if we don't have divine providence we will not be able to survive the things that are arrayed in front of us are no greater no less than what our founders uh had arrayed against them it's a little more difficult because of technology but they had spies living in their home we have spies living in our home we have the government living in our home listening to amazon you know alexa or or whoever so what do we do well people will be lovers of themselves so then that would mean we need to love our neighbor even if we don't like them you know i i joined my church and i urge you to find something in your life that will will help you do this but i joined my church because a guy who um i had dubbed the amazing mr plastic man i still remember his name lenny ashuto and um I didn't think he was real because the first time he he said something to me, he said, I just love you so much. And I was like, oh, back off, dude. You know, give me 10 minutes and you'll hate my guts. <laughs> I was still I was more of a dry drunk at this point. Um, But he he had the perfect family, the perfect children. They all played the piano. They were all smiles. They were. And I thought no one can be like that. No one can be that happy. No one. And one Sunday he was teaching class and I was being stubborn because I didn't want to go to church every Sunday. I didn't want to join a church. I haven't joined anything in my entire life. I didn't want to join a church. And uh, Pat will recall around this time when I was heavily drinking and until I changed my ways, uh, my slogan was, Pat, what did we used to always say my slogan was? I hate people. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't want to be that way. And it was coming from me and I knew it. And uh, Lenny was teaching a class. And he said, brethren, how do we get to this place where it's Zion, where it's where it's uh, where it's bliss? How do we get there? What do we have to do to build it? And a lot of people had answers, um, but none of them really stuck. And then he said, with tears in his eyes, there's only one way. If I love you and you love me, we may not know each other. We may not like each other. We may have just met, but we found a way to look into each other's eyes and see the same spirit, the same spark that is in the other. And we recognize it. And therefore, we love others. 
And I realized this guy was not plastic at all. He was the most genuine man I had ever met. That was the day I decided that I wanted to be like that. And I didn't care what it took to be like that, but I wanted to be that way. If the people are going to be lovers of themselves, then we have to find that way to love one another, even those we don't like. Remember, even in the Civil War, the one reason why Lincoln wasn't uh, universally loved, uh, well, there was a lot of reasons, uh, which is weird. None of them involved the wart or the beard. I guess they were, I guess they were better people than we were back then. I, I don't know because we would never have a president le- that looked like that now. But um, he preached love and healing. That's his second inaugural address. It's all about healing. And you know what? If we lose this, it's because God's ordained it. If we lose this war, because we've shed too much blood of the slave, well, then we lose this war. But let's love each other. Let's do the right. Let's heal the wounds. Uh, that, that, that could never be said today. If you're going to be lovers of money, if that's what the people we're supposed to avoid, then we can't love money. We must not love things. We must love people. If the world is loving things over people, we must love people over things. People are going to be boastful and proud. We need to be humble and quiet. Basically, you need to be the opposite of me. You need to be humble. You need, if they're going to be abusive, we need to be complimentary. This is the best of the Glenn Beck Program. All the news that fit to print today. Normandy, France, 1944. In a surprise aggressive move, American and British troops landed yesterday on the beaches of Normandy. Germany's Transocean News Service reports that Germans simply vacationing in the sleepy hamlets of this coastal region were awakened by the ships, planes, guns, and bombs of this sneak attack. A few brave German tourists quickly ran to the bunkers and began returning fire to protect their French brothers and sisters. Germany has already been subject to a horrifying 363 air raids by the Allied air forces in an attempt to terrorize its citizens. British bombers have already dropped over 45,000 tons of bombs while American aircraft dropped 23,000 tons. Nearly 1.7 million people have been forced from their homes, creating what the United Nations has called the greatest refugee problem in history. Many fleeing Germans only stopped briefly to say their goodbyes to their friends that they had made at the various camps throughout Germany and Poland. The attack on Normandy coast was an oppressive show of military might. The Allied forces 
have amassed the largest armada in human history, building a harbor where none previously existed, and sneaking into it unnoticed. On college campuses, various socialist student organizations have held vigils, protests, and riots to condemn this illegal occupation. They noted that deaths in Germany have numbered in the millions, while Americans have had relatively few casualties, perhaps only 100,000 to 200,000. If the number of vacationers in German camps are included, that German death count increases by another 6 million. It's obvious from the numbers that this militant operation is nothing more than an attempt to murder innocent Germans and wipe out their culture. The League of Nations have labeled this action illegal under international law. Protests are occurring in all major cities today with demonstrators shouting that they will support the indigenous people of Germany against the occupying allied forces. And they will not stop until this disproportionate action is halted and the imperialist invading military is defunded. American heroes such as Charles Lindbergh and Henry Ford have come out strongly against this illegal and heartbreaking invasion that has resulted in the deaths of innocent Germans. Of course, some known deplorables like communist Charlie Chaplin and B-movie actor Ronald Reagan have stood by America and foolishly proclaimed that this invasion is needed for the self-defense and to, quote, save Western civilization, end quote, as if Western civilization were somehow superior to others, such as the Aryan civilization. American corporations including Coca-Cola, MGM, Ford Motor Company, General Motors, and IBM have all declared that they are in operating mode with solidarity with their oppressed German brethren. They will be donating money to the German Lives Matter group and step up their hiring of dramatic Americans. The squad, consisting of Mildred Axis Sally Gillers and William Lord Ha Ha Joyce, have been sitting for interviews with the press and doing radio and television shows to get the word out about their cause and to make Americans aware that their politicians are being dishonest and immoral and also advising the Allied soldiers that their wives are cheating on them back home. From the comfort of his simple bunker, amid the constant bombing, German leader Adolf Hitler stated that Germany simply wants to reclaim land that was forcefully and illegally taken from it in 1918. Austria, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, Romania, and Poland. If these stolen lands are returned, there would be peace, he said. The League of Nations condemned the Allies for their unequal response and called for an end to the cycle of violence. League officials hope that a ceasefire can be obtained before Germany has been overrun and the Allies institute their own government, as these officials have discovered a secret Marshall Plan that surely will impose martial law on Germany and result in the end of the German Reich, which was intended to last a thousand years. And that's the news, written by Bob Zeidman. You know, it's... I mean, you go back in time... 
That's not what happened, but that's the way it would be told, I think, today by today's media. We have uh, our good friend uh, David Petruza uh, with us, and he is uh, he's an author of some of the best history books uh, out there. He's got a new book out that, David, I want to have you on called uh, Too Long Ago. Maybe we'll do a Friday special with you. Um, but, uh, we wanted to talk to him about the anniversary of D-Day. David Pedruza is with us now. Hi, David. Hello. So where do we even begin with D-Day, seeing that our, our schools are not learning about it, our children aren't learning anything about it? Give us the highlights of what people really need to understand and how brave, daring, and deadly this thing was. It could have gone terribly, terribly wrong. And uh, there are two reasons for thinking that. It was the biggest amphibious uh, invasion in uh, world history. 150,000 soldiers, 130,000 on the beach, 20,000 airborne coming in behind German lines. And there had been a practice run in 1942 with Canadian troops at the French port of Dieppe, where they sent in 6,000 troops and there were 4,000 casualties. The good news about it is they learned everything what not to do. Have more naval bombardments, have more air power striking, have a more flexible plan. Don't go into a port, go into beaches. And so they learned from that. But even then... In April of 1944, they have a training exercise with 23,000 allied American troops in the south of England. 749 troops die in a training exercise when some German E-boats attack. So things can go wrong. Things did go wrong. Tanks floundered off. The tides put the uh, U.S. soldiers maybe a mile away on uh, Utah Beach, so they landed in the wrong spot. That's when Theodore Roosevelt Jr., a general, a 56-year-old, lands on the beach, looks around, says, hey, nothing's right here, we're in the wrong place, and then he says, the war starts from here. Hmm. Tell me about the Canadians, uh, because I had not heard that, and I know that Canadians were being held by the Germans and they were massacred by the SS during this, weren't they? That's that's true. They land on Juneau Beach, which is which is snuck between the British beaches of sword uh, and gold. And there are a number of them captured. And it starts with one massacre of about 20 Canadians. And it's an SS regiment. Uh, they're shot right in the back of the head. There's no question about that this is a, a massacre of, of civilian of prisoners. And about 140 in total are, are shot right away by these characters. The Canadians uh, arrest the co- uh, co- commandant of that, and they bring him back to Canada. He's the first uh, person ever tried for mm. war crimes in Canada. He's sentenced to death, but you know how they say, oh, you can't have the death penalty. We just have life without parole. This guy is out in, in 10 years after being sentenced to death. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. So when they, I mean, I know that Eisenhower had a letter that he had sent um, that because they really expected that this could be just a disaster. I mean, they lost more more people on that one day than we've lost in the 15 years in Iraq. Um, and it's it was a it, literally a bloodbath. 
and it could have been much worse. And he had in his pocket, I believe, or he had sent out um, a, a letter to be read in case it was a disaster, taking all of the blame on himself. Yeah, he, he knew um, that if it went badly, if it was a disaster, he'd be out of there anyway. So he knew he had what does to, that say? to man, man up. What's that say about his about his um, character? I mean, who does that? Is that unusual? Um, nowadays, one would make a lot of excuses, but there were no excuses with him. There's a great interview, an hour and a half, with Walter Cronkite, which he did 20 years afterwards. You can watch it on YouTube, and you can see his command of details of who was here, there, over that hill, what unit there were, how many people were were involved, and and what the implications of everything was. This they had the right guy in charge there, and also he was a diplomat. Some very prickly personalities involved, not just Patton, but Bernard Montgomery was particularly at loggerheads with Eisenhower, and he made the whole thing work. It's it's. We focus on the heroism and the blood and the guts, but it's really as much a triumph of planning, immense planning down to soil samples and what the gradient of the beach will be and, and all these technical details as it is about the, the bullets flying. And, of course, intelligence, planting ideas in the Germans that they're going to land somewhere else up the French coast at Calais, and so the Germans don't bring enough troops in even once the fighting starts they think we have twice as many troops stationed in britain than we actually have that there might be an invasion of norway or at the pas de calais and that normandy even when it pops is going to be just a feint a fake out in in to get mm. us uh, to get them distracted before we hit with the big one and it ain't this is the big one. David Petruza, historian and author of uh, Too Long Ago. We're talking about uh, D-Day and what it was what it was really uh, like. David was I mean, they called it bloody Omaha for Omaha Beach. Was that the worst place? Because if that would have failed, the whole thing would have fallen apart. Right. Right. And Utah Beach is not particularly well defended by the Germans, but the um a lot of the tanks, which are supposed to support our men on the on the beach, uh, just sink into the ocean, uh, and it is very much heavily defended. And if they start to withdraw from Omaha Beach, then do they withdraw not to the ships but to the other beaches? And because logistics are so important, that could have created chaos in the other beaches and just sunk the whole thing. It's a success. We win. Okay. But none of the main objectives of D-Day for D-Day are met. They want to capture four major towns just in back of the beaches, and they want to link up all the beaches, and they don't. So as much as we throw our best at the Germans, and, and they make a lot of mistakes in terms of intelligence and moving troops in and out and not having air power, it's, it's a toughly run thing there for a while. As Rommel said, and it's Rommel who coins the phrase, this is the longest day. And if, we, and if they are to beat the Allies, they mm. have to do it that day. Rommel was turned against Hitler at that point. Wasn't he at that point almost plotting against Hitler? Didn't want us necessarily to win, but but knew what Hitler was doing to the country 
and was against him. Do I have that right? Yeah, he eventually becomes part of the conspiracy to blow up Hitler um, or, or to overthrow him. And what happens is that Hitler catches on to this. He had been a he had been a favorite of Hitler. He had been part of his guard going back years before that. So he had his confidence. That's why Hitler places him in charge of this of this great Atlantic Wall to beef this up. But then when he's caught by Hitler as part of this plot, he's given the option: either you are put on trial or you commit suicide. We hush the whole thing up. And your family gets to walk away. They don't go into any camps. They get the pension, and the, you get the gold watch. Mm. But kill yourself, and because it would hurt morale greatly if this guy at that point in time is found not to be with the Nazi program. In terms of secrecy, on our side, we have that training exercise at Slapton Sands, where 749 of our soldiers are killed. That is kept a U.S. military secret until 1984, when a housewife wait, wait, wait. in England... What? What, what was this? In, in, at when we lost 749 U.S. personnel... Okay, in that training exercise... exercise. In okay. a training exercise in April of 44, that is kept secret from the American public until 1984, not 44, 84. And that Holy is released cow. only when a British housewife starts talking about it and making noise. And finally, the U.S. government has to own up to it. Again, why keep it secret? Proportions of you keep everything secret from the Germans. You don't want them to know anything we're doing, although certainly they knew something was going on because they sunk the boats these guys were on, but also not to damage our morale. So they say. How many, how many, how but, many but, transgender, how, how many transgender people were on the beach that day, David? That's what's important. <laughs> we don't know and we don't care. <laughs> yeah, we don't. Oh, well, there, well, we there don't were those, there were care. those, there was that guy in kilts. <laughs> there was the guy in kilts yeah. playing the bagpipe. <laughs> which, which was really, he, did he actually do that? Because really he befuddled the Germans. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I have a Scottish friend who is like, he's like in war he said one of us will go out if it's in a tough bet we'll play the bagpipes and i'm like that's nuts man he's like "Eh, that's what we do that's what we do david petruza thank you so much i'd love to have you on again about your book uh, too long ago uh it is um his expedition into a uh a small town childhood uh after world war ii and how they survived World War II, what they came out of, and what they uh, came to here in America, and what it all meant not too long ago. David Petruza, thank you for being on the program. Na, na, na.